I started as a criminology major. I had always been fascinated with the criminal justice system, and my career goal was to become a prison warden someday. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for this show and a CPA myself. Well, today we have another forensic accounting specialist, Tracy Conan, joining us for the program. Even though we've had a few forensic accountants on the show, this is going to be different because Tracy's story is definitely unique. First of all, and you'll hear this early in the show, Tracy was a criminology major before she pursued accounting. In fact, she wanted to be a prison warden early in life, and that's something you definitely don't hear too often. But after taking one specific course in college, she realized that she had a knack for numbers, and and she decided to go the accounting route, getting her CPA, a few years of audit experience, and then launching out with her own company, Sequence Inc., You're going to hear some very practical advice in this episode. So if forensic accounting is something that you're thinking about for yourself and your career, you definitely need to listen to this interview with Tracy. We cover a lot of ground about the practicalities of forensic accounting as a field and a business in this show. If you do learn something from the episode and you enjoy it, please follow us on LinkedIn. Just search for Where Accountants Go will pop right up. You'll see all our podcast posts there. And occasionally we have special offers for our listeners as well. So definitely check that out. And as always, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career, please don't hesitate to reach out to me as well. I'm happy to help in any way that I can. Well, like I said, you're really going to enjoy this interview. Let's go ahead and get started. Here's Tracy Conan. Well, hello, Tracy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. No problem. No problem. Thank you for being here. Well, for the audience, today we have another forensic accounting specialist joining us for the program. I was able to get time with Tracy Conan, and she's worked in the field for over 20 years, and interestingly enough, primarily in her own practice. What caught my attention initially, though, was her work as an expert witness. And I thought there'd be some good learning opportunity here for all of us if we were able to schedule this. And luckily, Tracy was able to make the time. This is going to be a fun discussion. Well, Tracy, before we get to the present time, let's make sure we cover your overall journey in some detail so people understand where you came from. What led you to decide to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? Well, I think my path is a little bit different than a lot of accounting professionals. When I started college at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I started as a criminology major. I had always been fascinated with the criminal justice system, and my career goal was to become a prison warden someday. And I know, Mark, that you hear that an awful lot. There's a lot of people who say that their dream is to become a prison warden, and so (laughs) that was mine. And so I got started in the criminology program and really enjoyed that. And my sophomore year, I took a special course that they only offered once every few years, and it was called Financial Crime Investigation. It was taught by an IRS special agent who worked in the Criminal Investigation Division, and I was really intrigued by that and really thought that that might be a career for me because I was always really good with numbers. But as I was looking at careers, my fascination with the criminal justice system was really drawing me in. And then all of a sudden, here is this opportunity where I could, in some ways, kind of take that and my love of numbers and make a career out of it. So what I did was I started taking accounting courses. 
so that I could see if I had the aptitude there because I was good with numbers, but let's see if I can apply that to the accounting world. I really enjoyed that. And so I was sort of off on that path towards becoming a forensic accountant. I continued getting a criminology major, but I got a business minor. And then I almost immediately started getting my MBA and I used all my electives in the MBA program to take more accounting courses so that I would qualify to sit for the CPA exam. As I wrapped up my MBA, I sat for the CPA exam, passed that, and immediately started working for Arthur Anderson, one of the big four firms. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> well, it always amazes me you know, how much variety there is out there because you're right. Yeah, this is going to be episode 230-something, and you're the first criminology major <laughs> that we've had on the program. Wow. Cool. Interesting. Yes, yes. Yes, I knew you were unique. I'm just, I'm just starting to find out the many ways at this point. <laughs> I was curious how you got into it so quickly and into forensics. And, and now I understand with the criminology background. But before we get to your own company, though, I, I want to make sure we understand your early experience, your foundational experience, if you will. I guess, how long were you at Arthur Anderson? And how do you feel that benefited you? I was at Arthur Anderson for about 18 months. So when I decided to go into public accounting and I knew that I wanted to do forensic accounting and fraud work, I was looking for a firm that would offer me that opportunity. And I was hired as an auditor, so a general auditor for Arthur Anderson, but they knew of my interest in fraud and promised me that they would try to put me on projects that involved that aspect. I was a summer start at Arthur Anderson, which most students start later in the year so that they can ramp up for busy season. But I started in summer and I got on some projects right away, doing some due diligence for some mergers and acquisitions, things like that. A couple of June 30th year-end companies, audits. I basically did as much as I possibly could at Arthur Anderson in the short time I was there. So I did audits, I did due diligence, I did the tax rotation to get experience there, and I did a couple of fraud-related projects. But there really wasn't a whole lot available to me in the fraud arena, so I was keeping my eyes open for opportunities out there. And it so happened at about the 18-month mark, there was a small forensic accounting firm that was looking for a staff person, and I went and took that job. So I worked there for a couple of years and then started my own firm. And so how Arthur Anderson really benefited me was giving me that basis of knowledge in accounting. So I always say that in order to know when something is wrong or fraudulent, you first have to know when it's right. And so you really need to take that textbook learning and apply it to the real world and see what do those financial statements look like in the real world? How do we drill down into those numbers? How do we get comfort with those numbers in a situation where more more likely than not, the financials are okay and there isn't a fraud going on. And so I took that time at Arthur Anderson to do as much as I could and learn as much as I could about the basics of accounting and tax and then went on to specialize. Okay. Okay. So you're at Arthur Anderson by a year and a half. You go to a local firm for a couple of years. And then if I'm understanding this right, pretty much immediately after that, you start your own practice. Is that correct? I sure did. So I got a couple of years specializing in forensic accounting. So wow. the firm I went to, that's all that they did. And then I decided to start my own firm. And 
At the time, probably I was a little light on experience to do that. And I was certainly very light when it came to having a professional network and having clients ready and willing to hire me. I didn't have that. I really hadn't done any networking things. I didn't know a lot of people professionally. I didn't have any ready-made clients. And so I was a little behind the eight ball with that. But At the time I started my own firm, I wanted to do things a little bit differently. And the main problem that I had with working in accounting was hourly billings. I hated keeping track of my time and I hated billing clients for my time. I decided right out of the gate, I don't want people buying my time. I want them paying for what I know and paying for a project, a result, something like that. And so I immediately started using fixed fees, and I've been using fixed fees for 21 years. Interesting. Well, you know, I had Ron Breaker on the show a while back, and he's the founder of the Verisage Institute, and basically his life mission is to kill the billable hour. And I remember at one point, this is probably six months ago, he said that he thought they were past the tipping point to kill the billable hour. It wasn't dead yet, but it was just barely on life support, you know, and and I'm starting to really believe that he's correct because I can't tell you how many episodes I do now where people talk about their dislike for hourly billing and tracking time and things like that. So yeah, you were definitely not alone. You were probably a pioneer because we're, we're talking 20 years ago. That is really interesting. Very interesting. So you started your firm off without tracking, well, whether or not you track time, but without billing your clients by the hour? Did you start out that way? It's true. I did start out that way. And, And of course, there were some nerves because I had never done it before. And in the beginning, my fixed fees were nothing more than me trying to figure out how long do I think this project is going to take me and what's an appropriate billing rate. So in the background, I was almost doing hourly fees, right? But uh-huh. it was the only basis I had. And, and over time, the fees got a little more task-oriented and value-oriented. And so when I say task-oriented, I mean, if I'm working on a case where I'm tracing money through a bunch of bank accounts, I can look at those bank accounts and see how many transactions there are, how many accounts, and from that, come up with a fee that's appropriate for analyzing those accounts. So that's sort of the task-based component of the fee. And then in addition to that, there are things that go into calculating a fee, like what is the complexity of this case? What is the availability of other experts? The more specialized a case is and the more need there is for my specific skills, there's probably a little bit more that I can charge for that fee. Sure. Yeah. It carries a lot more value. That makes sense. Yeah. I just, I want to back up a little bit here because you did start your business at a relatively early point in your career. Do you have entrepreneurs in your family or, I mean, did you have entrepreneurial influences early in life? Or, I'm just curious where that comes from because it takes a lot no, of time. No, huh? I come from a very blue-collar family. My grandparents were farmers. My dad worked in a factory. And so what I came to this with was a very strong work ethic, uh, but there was no entrepreneurial experience or exposure for me whatsoever. Okay. How did you get your initial clients? Because you also mentioned not having much of a network yet and that kind of thing. So how did you get your first work? How did you put the food on the table? Well, the first thing that I did was contact a few clients that I had worked with at my previous company. And of course, that was, you know, you kind of had to do a little dance with that. You know, I, I contacted them and said, listen, I'm not necessarily trying to take work away from my former employer, but if you enjoyed working with me, if you liked my work product, I wanted you to know that I've started my own firm. 
This is how I'm doing business. If you're interested, I'd love to work with you again. And I actually had a couple who took me up on that and that led to meeting some other clients. And so that was beneficial. But the other big way that I got clients was I started getting involved in networking activities. It was a long, slow process, but there, I felt there was no other way. How else was I going to build my professional network? And so I, in those early days, went to every chamber of commerce meeting any sort of business-focused group that was having a mixer where I thought there might be some attorneys there, I went. And so from the very beginning, I focused on selling my services to attorneys. My previous firm focused on selling their services to insurance companies. And so there was sort of a, a difference there in who I was selling to. And that was great because then I wasn't directly competing with them. And so I was looking for networking events that had attorneys present. Okay. Okay. I was just curious because, yeah, you really have to hustle you know, if you're starting from zero <laughs> to, to get the business. Well, and it was a lot tougher than I imagined it was going to be. So when I started, I immediately went to a temp agency and okay. I started temping part-time so that I knew that I would be able to pay my rent no matter what. Did that for a while for probably six, eight months. Then I went and got a job at a college teaching in the evenings again, to make sure that I always had my rent paid. And so I did what I had to do to kind of cobble together a living until I got some traction with getting clients. Okay. Okay. I don't know how well you know Leah Weedholder, but you mentioned that to me prior to the show. And and she tells the story about how she cooked dinner for her friends and stuff, (laughs) stuff like that, you know, just making meals and to to make some extra income while she was bringing in. And actually, I think she targeted attorneys just like you did. That's very interesting. A little commonality there, definitely. Yeah, and I I think Leah and I have a lot of similar mindsets in terms of being entrepreneurs and how you approach business and how you work with clients and things like that. She's great. Yes, yes, she is. So tell us about your practice. Are you a solo practitioner? Have you ever had employees? Have you ever thought about adding team members or or do you have a team? What's it look like? I like to say I've been a solo for 21 years. There's a little white lie buried in there because in 2003, I thought that the right thing to do was try to build a firm and add staff and that's how you grow and grow your revenue and made a couple of hires. And those hires ultimately didn't work out. We plotted along for about six months. It wasn't the right fit for them. It wasn't the right fit for me. They moved on to other opportunities. And I realized I didn't want to be someone's boss. I didn't want to teach someone how to be a forensic accountant. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so at that point, I really focused on doing the things I wanted to do, not doing the things I don't like to do, and just committed to being a solo for the long haul, which is pretty unusual in the forensic accounting space, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really worked out in terms of me selling myself to the clients as when you have the case that needs a lot of expertise and you want to know exactly who's working on your stuff and you want that person who's going to testify to be the person who dug through the numbers, that's when you hire me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's a good pitch as well. So, Something you said really caught my attention. You wanted to focus on the parts that you like. So what are the parts of forensic accounting that you really enjoy? How do you enjoy spending your time? So I do enjoy the business development piece. 
I enjoy digging into the investigations and getting right down there into the numbers. I don't mind digging through thousands of documents. I don't mind matching invoices to payments and and all the stuff that maybe you typically have younger staff folks doing. I actually like it. And the reason I like it is because it is putting together pieces to a puzzle. And I Mm. like looking at those details and finding that aha, that one piece that is that smoking gun. I like that when I'm doing that kind of work, I find a detail that really, really matters. And I look at that detail and I think, gosh, if I had a brand new staff person looking at it, they probably would have missed that detail. And so that kind of gets me excited. What I don't like is some of the administrative stuff. So I never liked again, billing by the hour. I didn't like sending out invoices. I didn't like arguing with clients about how much time it took me to do something. So how did I stop having to do that? Well, I do the fixed fees. My clients pay in advance of doing the work, so I don't have accounts receivable. I don't go to the networking events that I don't want to go to. So in the early days, I kind of went to anything and everything. These days, I go to only the events that I know will be heavily attorney-focused and will be the right place for me to be. So things like that. That's how I, I sort of wade through what I like and what I don't like. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned being an expert witness, and that is what initially caught my attention when, it, when I saw it on LinkedIn. In fact, it was, it was probably something that Leah had posted and you liked or, or you posted and she liked or whatever. But that, that's how I ended up noticing your profile. And I saw the expert witness line and, and I thought, you know, this will be a good discussion or a good learning opportunity for me and for the audience. What are some of the characteristics you feel like it takes to, to be a good expert witness? I mean, that's part of what you like. What are some of the skills that it's necessary to develop or what kind of person does a good job <laughs> in that kind of role? Sure. So testifying either in deposition or at trial, you need a lot of patience. Someone is always trying to trip you up, Mm. trying to get you to make a mistake, maybe even trying to upset you. And so it takes a lot of patience and kind of an even keel sort of personality. You got to kind of just roll with the punches. Of course, it takes confidence. I have to be confident in the work that I've done and the conclusions that I've come to. And I have to be able to be really clear, really concise. So communicate what I need my audience to know, but in a way that they can understand and not in a long, drawn-out fashion. And so where my work is a little bit different than some other experts is you will typically see my reports are shorter because I get right to the point. And I think that my reports are much easier to understand. By being concise, I think it forces me to have to make it more understandable. You know, I'm always thinking about if a judge or a jury reads this report and they've never had any accounting in their life, they were the the kid in school who was terrible at math, how am I going to get them to understand what I'm telling them? That is interesting. One thing I've really wanted to ask you about this. And by the way, those characteristics don't surprise me at all because I I tend to be very wordy prior to recording a podcast. And we were getting this started this morning, or excuse me, when we were getting this started this morning, um, I was going through my checklist and and you were just very concise. Yes, yes, no problem. Yes, yes. So that doesn't surprise me at all. But one thing I did want to ask you though, is I would be very stressed, very nervous on the stand, being an expert witness. I mean, is that something you've ever had to fight or do you still fight that at all? Or I'm just curious, is it something that doesn't bug you at at this point? (laughs) 
I do get nervous, but it doesn't bother me. I feel like if you're not nervous before you testify before a jury, there's something wrong with you because this is very high stakes. Like I have described it to my friends, like testifying in court is like the Super Bowl of my career, right? In the case Mm. that I'm working on, that is the ultimate thing. And so, of course, I've got to be a little bit nervous. I've got to be thinking about where could this go wrong, anticipating where might they try to trip me up, make me look silly. I've been on the witness stand before where an attorney started asking me a question and was pointing me to something in my report. And as I looked at that report, I knew I could see that I had made a small mistake in one of my calculations. And the mistake didn't matter, but the light bulb went on as he asked me a question. And I knew that in about two or three questions, he was going to point out the mistake. And you always feel terrible on behalf of a client when there's a mistake. And fortunately, again, it wasn't one that even mattered to the overall calculation. And so you admit to the mistake and you say, we're all human, we all make mistakes, and hope that the judge or the jury accepts that and your credibility isn't wrecked for them. But there's always those nerves that something like that might come up or, or you know, some issue that you hadn't thought of. Sometimes you can get into a case and you kind of get tunnel vision. You have your ideas about it. You have your focus, and all of a sudden, someone brings up an issue that you hadn't thought about. And so there's always the nerve that something like that might happen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I would have to deal with that every time, (laughs) the nerves portion. So, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. There's good that there's people out there like you that can can handle that in a much better way. Um, Well, and at the same time, you know, yes, there's nerves, but I also thrive on it. And I really enjoy it. And and there is something Mm -hmm. about the adrenaline of getting through that and and finishing and feeling very accomplished at the end of it. It is really something that I enjoy about my work. Okay. That makes sense. I may have mentioned this in the pre-show. I'm not sure. But a large part of our audience are what I call up-and-coming professionals. In other words, they're early in their careers, maybe even still accounting students, but definitely the first five years or so in their careers. If they're listening to this and thinking forensic accounting or being an expert witness or you know, this in-depth investigation is something that I think I really enjoy, I'd like to point my own career in that direction. I guess, what should they know about the realities of forensic accounting? What are some of the lesser known items or, or things we wouldn't know looking at from the outside? Well, I think you probably would know that there's a lot of details involved. So that's not anything new. When you go the traditional auditing or tax route, you kind of know exactly when busy season is and so when you're going to be working a lot of hours. And I think in forensic accounting, different, we never know when we're going to be busy. You know, there are ebbs and flows to it. And so it might be a little bit less predictable that way. I mean, other than that, I don't really see drawbacks to the career choice at all. But if you are a younger professional, if you are a student looking to get involved in forensic accounting, you should know it's pretty competitive for those with little to no experience because it is a fun area. It's a hot area. And so there's a lot of folks who want to get involved in it. And so there's competition out there for those jobs. So the best way that you can set yourself up for a career in forensic accounting, if that's the way that you really want to go, is start early to get any experience you can. Of course, you want to look for a firm that has an emphasis on forensic accounting. That would be the best way to go about it. 
but look for volunteer opportunities, maybe with your local police or sheriff's department. They are often needing uh, help with cases with the numbers, but they don't necessarily have staff who have that expertise. And so they sometimes take volunteers. Just looking for any opportunity to get something on your resume, to get some experience, to get you on that path is great. You know, Carrie, he's just caused me to think of something else. So I guess being a, a self-employed forensic accountant, you really don't know when the work's going to come in, you know, because you get a call or someone contacts you and says, you know, I think we've had a fraud or, or invest it, you know, could you investigate this or you know, that kind of thing. And, and there's not a season for it. How do you manage sort of the ebbs and flows of business being the business owner? How do you manage that to, to yeah, go ahead. So for me now, there's not much in terms of ebb and flow. I am working at capacity all the time. And so it's really up to me to say, I don't want to take a case or I'm not able to take a case. I like to say I'm always triaging my cases. And so if, uh, for example, if someone calls me today and says, I have a case, how soon could you get started? Right now, I would not be starting anything on a case before September. And so I turn around my cases probably a little faster than some folks do. I typically tell clients to 60 to 90 days, you can expect completion. And that shorter time frame, I think, helps me triage things a little bit better. I have a, a, you know, a really good window into what my next few months looks like, and I can plan my time pretty well. So for me, it's all about my choices and when I want to work and when I don't. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, after 20 years, I guess <laughs> you're at that point. You've built a reputation in the marketplace, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, you've got some books and courses out there as well, correct? I know I saw something about that. I do. So my most recent book is called Lifestyle Analysis and Divorce, and that one was published by the American Bar Association. It's actually in its second edition. So I did well enough that we did a second edition. And it's all about tracing money through accounts and looking for spending patterns, looking for potentially hidden income, hidden assets, things like that. So it is for divorce attorneys, but it's got a lot of really great information for accountants who might be working on any type of forensic accounting case. If you need to understand more about how to use a tax return in a case, how to best analyze bank statements, how to set up your file and determine what analysis you need to do, all those kinds of things in there. Okay. Hey, I'm curious, how much of your work is divorce-related or business partner and divorce <laughs> related versus other types of fraud because I hadn't thought of that as being part of forensic accounting until I started interviewing forensic accountants. But do you have any idea how much of it is more divorce related or you know, business partners are splitting up versus someone stole money? I like to say that my practice is about a third fraud investigations. So the things like the executive stealing from companies, about a third mm-hmm. of my work is divorce work. And then about a third of my work is other litigation. So companies arguing about contracts or businesses splitting up, who caused who to lose money, things like that. Oh, okay. I haven't thought about that aspect of it. Okay. Okay. If I wanted to, I could probably make divorce be 100% of my work. I just choose not to because I enjoy the other types of cases as well. Sure. Sure. And I think if you ask, you know, most people just considering the field, they would assume that it's 100% fraud. (laughs) You're related. Mm -hmm. So that's that's why I wanted, yeah, we we don't think about the other areas where people try to hide money. So yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Thinking over your entire career thus far, and by the way, I end every show with the same three questions. We're going to get to those in just a second, but I wanted to ask you this first. 
thinking over your entire career, if you could go back in time and give your younger self just one piece of critical advice, knowing what you know now, what do you think that would be? I would ask for more responsibility. So every stage of working for someone else, even though for me it was a little bit short, just seek out more responsibility and more opportunities to do bigger, better things. Because obviously without getting in over your head, but that's how you learn and that's how you build confidence, you know, give others confidence in you and things like that. So I would have asked for more responsibility. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's come up in a couple of our other episodes as well. Just staying later, being willing to do a little more and ask for a little more responsibility. Mm -hmm. That makes sense for sure. Well, I do end every show with the same three questions. So we'll we'll go ahead and get to those at this point. So I want to make sure we leave enough time for that. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? It was definitely helping an elderly woman get back her life savings. In the scheme of this world, her life savings might not have been a lot to some people, but to her, it was everything. It was everything that her husband had left her when he had died unexpectedly. She had never in her life even written a check or managed any money, and a family friend swindled her out of the money, and I was involved in uh, the lawsuit that helped her get that money back from him, and that was very rewarding. Wow. Yeah, something like that. It almost doesn't matter if you achieve anything else in your career. Yeah, you made a difference. That's, oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's special. Well, second request, tell us about a lesson you learned the hard way. And you've been self-employed for a while, so there's probably a few to pick from. (laughs) But the more you can tell us about the situation, the better, because that's how we learn from all these. I'm going to avoid being terribly specific here. I'm going to say the lesson learned the hard way is be careful who you trust. And I'm thinking about clients and whether it's trusting that they're being honest with you, trusting that they're going to pay you, trusting that they're on the up and up, or even trusting who you go into business with and things like that. Just be very careful and and listen to your gut feel. When you see those red flags, listen to your gut, proceed very cautiously. You know, I, I don't think that this is new advice that no one's ever given before. I think there are a lot of professionals out there who are nodding their heads right now and thinking about that time that they saw some red flags and they ignored them about a client or a business partner and it came back to bite them. So be careful who you trust. Okay. Well, that that makes a lot of sense for a forensic accountant (laughs) to, uh, to bring that up. Sure. Sure. Well, last question and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Riches are in niches. Mm. So yes, I early on obviously specialized in forensic accounting, but even from there, I further specialized within the field of forensic accounting. So for example, I don't do any business valuations. There are certain types of case like intellectual property cases that I typically don't take The more focused I have been and more specific I have been with the types of cases and the things that I do, the more successful I have been. And I think that as accountants, we have a tendency to want to be all things to all people and to provide any kind of service we possibly can, especially when you're early on trying to start your own firm, get a base of business going. But the more focused you can be, I think long-term, you set yourself up for success better. That makes sense. Sure. If you focus enough, eventually you become the one person that's most appropriate for a job. And so, yeah, that makes makes a ton of sense for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if this is applicable or not, but, you know, if your books or courses 
are available to sort of the general accounting public? I mean, where would we find them? You can find the Lifestyle Analysis book at the American Bar Association's website. That's the only place that the second edition is currently available. If you want to learn how to be a forensic accountant and start to learn how to do fraud investigations, I have a fraud investigation series at CPA Crossings. They do CPE for accountants. And I've got a four-part series there on fraud investigations. And the cool thing about it is you can take take one or two of the courses. You don't have to take all four. You don't have to take them in any particular order. If you do want to take all four of them, I recommend doing it in order because there is a logical flow to them, but no one of those four is dependent on any of the other ones. And so you can pick and choose what you like. So that's a great spot if you want to start learning how to do fraud investigations. Wonderful. Thank you. I want to make sure we got that in. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Tracy, thanks for spending the time to do this. I'm glad you don't bill by the hour because I'd I'd be getting invoiced at this point. (laughs) Thank you for sharing your time with the audience. It was great talking with you. Thanks for having me. No problem. Well, that was my interview with Tracy Conan of Sequence Incorporated. I really enjoyed this interview. Tracy was so, so easy to interview, very joyful as well. You can tell she really enjoys what she does. I always have a couple takeaways, and I think this is going to be obvious, but gosh, helping an elderly woman get her life savings back. I mean, it's hard to compete with that, right? (laughs) Talk about making a difference in the world. I think that's just amazing and wonderful that she was able to do that and wonderful that she has the skill set to be able to do that. And secondly, I really enjoyed the conversation about what it takes to be an expert witness. That was a conversation that I specifically wanted to have in this episode, and we were able to do it. That's one of her specialties. And that's something that definitely I couldn't do, but I'm glad there are people like Tracy and other forensic accountants in the world that can provide that type of service because it is very important, of course. And gosh, you know, if that section of this podcast really spoke to you, then maybe forensic accounting is something that you should check out as well for your own career. Well, that wraps up this episode of Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest for you to learn from. And until then, we'll see you soon. After all, this is Where Accountants Go.